Today we pick back up in our study of the book of James. And as many of you know, if you've been a part of the study, we're going verse by verse through the book of James. We've been in this for a little bit over a year, and we do not go every single Sunday morning out of the book of James, but rather I will teach a chapter, come out for a series or two, go back in for a chapter, come out for a series or three or five, go back in for a chapter. And today we happen to be going back into chapter number three. And since it's been a while since we were in the book of James, I want to give about a five-minute refresher, help bring everybody else back up to speed. And if you've not been a part of this series, I don't want you to feel like you've been left behind. So the book of James confronts the inconsistent behavior of Christians and shows how wisdom and spiritual maturity are essential for right living. If we are to do the right thing, at the right time, in the right way, with the right heart and motivation. It is going to require us to have maturity as well as wisdom. That is the essence of what it means to be undivided between our beliefs and our behaviors. And what we find in the book of James is he is all about integrity. He's all about believers who are saying, this is what I believe, this is what I profess, And then he wants to make sure we're actually living in accordance with those particular areas. And according to James, it is only the person who is spiritually mature and wise that they can effectively resist temptation, respond obediently to God's word, overcome prejudice, produce good works, and all of the other pieces that are mentioned in the book of James. Now the challenge, as we found it in chapter 1, is that spiritual maturity and wisdom are both developed in the context of trials. Just as rough seas make good sailors, so also trials make mature believers. It's in the problems and the temptations and the issues of life that we learn right living. In other words, it's in those difficult moments that the old parts of the flesh are brought to the surface so that we recognize we still have sanctification we're walking through. Those issues are brought to the surface and a person has an opportunity to learn to rely upon the Spirit of God rather than themselves in order to see character developed in their life. Now to understand this idea, James gives this beautiful sequence from somebody being unsaved to spiritually mature in Christ. And here's the sequence he walks us through. The testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance leads to a person being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And for a person to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that is the essence of spiritual maturity. So what he's saying is, between now, wherever you might be in that, in that sequence, in that process, between now and the point of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know what the next step is going to be, if you are confused about any part of that, James says, ask God for wisdom, and he will give it to you generously and without reproach. Now, everything that was addressed at the first part of James chapter 1 was very personal in nature. Each person was called to count it all joy. Each person was to see trials as a way in which God was going to bring about maturity. Each person is to let endurance have its perfect result. Each person is challenged to ask God for wisdom when they don't know what to do. It's all been between the individual and God. But eventually, God's work in us is going to impact 
those around us. What's happened on a personal level, God intends for that to become a part of the public ministry where he is living his desire, his will, his way through us. So when that happens, when it is that a person is walking through this process of maturity, when it happens, what he did for us at salvation and what he is doing in us by sanctification will be foundational for what he does through us in service. Now, James takes all of that information, and then he starts to apply it to how we live and interact with other people. Now, remember, he is intentionally going after inconsistencies in a believer's life. And the reason is God's personal work in our life, when it becomes public, if that work is not clearly recognized as being from God, there's going to be a a discrepancy. People are going to look at what we're doing and listen to what we're saying and saying those two things don't add up. So what he now does is he spends the rest of this book going after everyday scenarios in order to show how there's inconsistencies in a believer's life. So he addresses things like, how do we go through trials? The way we treat poor people. Do we show partiality? Do we live what we actually believe? How do we handle temptation? How do we treat people who hurt us? Do we show mercy even to our enemies? And when we say, I believe God, does it change any part of how we operate in the real world? See, those are the areas where the world is watching. In fact, the more I study the book of James, the more convinced I am he would be one of the most unpopular preachers in 2023. He would be. James is bold. James does not mind bringing hard truth to the surface. He does not operate in the gray areas. He doesn't meander around things. In fact, he clearly brings some of the most uncomfortable parts of our Christian life. And he brings them out into the public and he says, that's a problem. That needs to be dealt with. It's interfering with our gospel witness. James goes after it. Here's what you find through the the book of James. If a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, if a person is surrendering to the Spirit's lead in their life, the Spirit of God will change every part of that person's life. It's going to change it all. He's going to change our speech, change our behavior, change our heart, change our thought life. Every part of that changes. And when he's the one doing the work, there will be something different and desirable in a believer's life for those who are outside the church. Now today, as we get into chapter 3, James brings the haymaker. If you thought the truths of chapters 1 and 2 were hard, he just did that to prep you a little bit for what he's about to get into in chapter number 3. This is one of the most unapologetic, take it or reject it, no holds barred sections of Scripture in the New Testament. If you really, if you really want to know about where your heart is at, if you really want to know about your level of maturity, James will let us know your tongue will tell the story. The tongue is linked to the heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When the heart is right, our words are good and edifying and truthful and gracious. And when our heart is wrong, when our heart is bad, when our heart is corrupt, 
then our words are going to show it. So before we get into this, I'm trying to give all of the upfront pieces I can. Before we get into this, I need you to know, Christian maturity is not measured by how long you have walked with Jesus. It is not measured by whether or not you give 10%. It is not measured by how much of the Bible you've memorized. It's not even measured by how often you go to church. Because somebody could walk with Jesus for 50 years, quote half the Bible, give 20% of their income, and they could live in the church parking lot and still act like a demon out of hell. He says, if you want to know where the story's at, if you want to know the essence of maturity, it is going to be measured by how a person's character has been conformed to the image of Christ, and are they living in accordance with God's word? That's the test of maturity. We're going to take our time going through the test or this text today. Um, If this seems like a lot just know I'm only really going to get into verse number one this morning. We're just going to, we're going to walk it through as easy as we can. And when I say easy, I mean like in your face, pounding you moment by moment. No, not quite. Okay, so go with me in your Bibles. I, I feel like if I share that up front, then nobody's taken off guard. Okay, so James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I am speaking this morning on the topic of more than words. Here's what he says, starting in verse number one and following. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, still are directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, from the very beginning that your spirit would guide us into all truth, asking God that we do not deflect, that we do not run, that we do not turn a deaf ear, but God, that we sit with this text and we allow your spirit to do the work on the inside. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Much of this morning's message is setting up this text. So it's not going to be until the very end that we really even get into verse number one because there's so much about the tongue that needs to be addressed to set the foundation for where this particular passage is going. Your tongue, your speech, what you say, it reveals you. In fact, it might not seem like it, but our words tell a story behind the story. What we say is one story. The fact that we say it tells another story. There are multiple narratives that are happening at any given moment in time. And and I want to set up this entire section with one big truth. And we're going to keep coming back to this over and over. Here it is. What we say reveals who we are, the direction we take, the impact we make, the one we trust, and the clarity of our witness. I know that's a mouthful, so let me say that again. What we say reveals who we are, the direction we take, the impact we make, the one we trust, and the clarity of our witness. That big truth is going to guide our study of these particular verses. There's five pieces that come out of that, and those five pieces are, it talks about character, direction, impact, trust, and clarity. Everything we say says something about our character and something about our level of maturity. Good or bad, right or wrong, wise or foolish, mature or immature, it's telling a story. Everything we say says something about the direction of our life. Did you know that your actions will follow a path that your mind has already blazed and many times your words have already verbalized? What we say impacts Those who are around us. What we say reveals who we really trust. Do we trust ourselves? Do we trust God? Do we trust our friends? It reveals who we trust. And here's the other one. It impacts the clarity of our gospel witness. I want to take a few moments to build this up because that is a theme that he is bringing all the way through the book of James. Here's what I mean by that. Are our words making it easier or harder for people to receive the gospel. I want you to sit with it for a moment. Let's not run from it. Are our words making it easier or harder for people to receive the gospel? When we tell people in one moment, my God is all powerful, my God supplies all of my needs, my God will defend me, That is good and that is biblical. If in the next moment we say, I can't control my urges, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, and if I don't say something, people won't know the truth, our words just gave us away. Because in that moment, we're given the world, and for that matter, the church, spiritual whiplash. Because we're saying something and all of a sudden we're like, whoa, wait, wait, what just happened right there? Because here's the thing, you either believe that God is all powerful or you don't. He is either supplying all of your needs or he's not. He is either going to defend you or he isn't. 
And our words are giving us away. There is a consistency issue, an integrity issue. There is an issue of being divided between what we say and how we live. And that's exactly what James is constantly pointing out. For the person who would say, it's just words. They really don't matter. I got caught up in the moment. It's no big deal. If you knew my circumstances, you would understand We all slip, even James said, we all slip and nobody's perfect. And besides, if all I have to deal with in my life is just my words and God sanctified all the rest, I'm doing pretty well. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James would say, you are wrong. In fact, he is going to build the case in this section that instead of our words being the last part of our life that is sanctified, he builds the argument that our words show if true sanctification is happening at all. Our words flow out of our hearts. And all sanctification happens at a heart level, not a head level, not an intention level, and not even a behavior level. So if sanctification, that is the process of being conformed into the character of Christ, If sanctification does not happen at a heart level, it is behavior modification, not character change, and it will not last. If sanctification does not happen at a heart level, we are putting a religious band-aid on a sin problem, and we are kicking the can of maturity further down the road. And when that happens, immature Christians will do sinful, immature things. If sanctification does not happen on a heart level, then the glory and the power of the gospel are being veiled by our human efforts and we are adding confusion to the world that is watching around us. It's either all about Jesus or it's not. And how we began with Christ is how we continue with Christ. How did we begin? By grace through faith. You and I could not save ourselves prior to the cross, and you and I cannot sanctify ourselves after the cross. It has to be the work of God. It is the work of God. He is the one who calls us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who seals us. He is the one who sanctifies us. And as he is working sanctification in our life, it is God who builds us as trophies of grace so that our lives reflect the power of the gospel and the glory of God. That's the design that we see in Scripture for 12 verses James teaches us that our speech is either pointing people back to the power of the gospel and the glory of God, or it's not. What you say, how you say it, who you say it to, why you say it at all, it's all telling a story. In fact, the issue of the tongue is such a profound part that James addresses issues of the tongue in every single chapter of this letter. Now, I said a few moments ago that the tongue is linked to the heart. In fact, the the heart is that source. That, That is, the tongue only produces what the heart directs. Do you get that? It's only bringing out where the heart's saying go. So as Because of that, we find that Jesus mentions the the pieces about the sins that come from the heart. He says in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. 
So let me pause here for just a moment so that we can see how big of a problem this really is. There are some types of sin that a person may never commit because they're simply not given the opportunity to commit it. For example, there might be sins associated with an abundance of wealth, and if somebody doesn't have an abundance of wealth, that's not exactly a sin that they're going to be dealing with. There are some sins that come with positions of power and authority, and if somebody is not in a position of power or authority, they just might not be dealing with that. But when it comes to sins of the tongue, it's open to everyone. And there is no end to the ways in which our tongue can lead to sin. Scripture describes the tongue as wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. And that is not even an exhaustive list. Who you are will inevitably be disclosed by what you say. In time, character comes out. In fact, the issue of the tongue was so big that the rabbis did not speak of the tongue as an arrow. They said it, or like they didn't describe it as a dagger or sword. They described it as an arrow because they said it can wound from great distances. In fact, someone can sit in the shadows and they can wound people. You can be at a distance and assassinate somebody's character. The tongue is powerful. It is unfortunate that a commentary that could be said of the church as a whole, and I speak specifically about the church in America in 2023, is that someone can remain in the good graces of a local church while slandering those that are around them, while gossiping about things that they should not be talking about. Someone can remain in the good graces of a church by lying to others. And sometimes we cloud over those things. We're like, it's not that big of a thing. It is a massive thing. It's an issue. In fact, when you think about the things that destroy families and churches and cause division and dysfunction, I cannot think of a sin that is more powerful than sins of the tongue. So let me be clear, clear. Sins of the tongue are exactly that. They are sins. They are destructive. It is a disgrace to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should not be tolerated. And I want you to hear me. The collective holiness of a church is seen in the sins we coddle but refuse to confront. The tongue can cause more problems than we can imagine. And by the way, there's two parts of that equation that I want to bring out. Number one, if somebody talks to you about someone else, rest assured they will talk about you to someone else. That Just hold on to that for a moment. So there's one part as far as what the person says. But here's another part of the problem. All too often they have a receptive audience. People just want to know. Like, just give me the skinny. Tell me what's happening behind the scenes. Tell me, tell me all the details. That's also sinful. You, you don't need all of those things. What, what we need to know is 
people are broken in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the best thing we can do for them is to love them well in prayer, and if someone, listen, if somebody comes to you and they start gossiping, here's the fastest way to shut it down. Say, that person is not here. I'm going to call them right now to get them here, and let's talk about it together. I'm going to tell you, if we operated that way, it would stop gossiping and slander overnight. Do you know, here's the reason why that doesn't happen. One, people want to hear. Two, it's uncomfortable to challenge people. But people need to be challenged. That's the entire book of James. He's saying what you're doing in the church is causing gospel confusion for those outside the church. Is it any wonder that the power of God often is gone within the church when we accept those things and say, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal according to God. Everything we're seeing in here, he's going to keep poking and challenging. Notice again, we're not even into verse 1 at this point. Notice how many passages in Scripture talk about the severity of sin and they connect it back to the tongue. In describing Man's total depravity. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp or serpents is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. When Isaiah became aware of the presence and the glory of God, it tells us he was convicted of sin, but specifically sins related to the tongue. He says, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. Pause there for just a moment. When somebody tells me that they are spirit-filled, they're walking with Jesus and they are sinning with their tongue, it's a lie from hell. The closer you are into the presence of God, the more the Spirit of God brings deep conviction in your heart when you are slandering and gossiping and sinning with your tongue. All it was is Isaiah was aware that he was in the presence of God, and instantly there's conviction over his life. Here's also what it says. According to Colossians chapter 3, For those who would make the argument that I I can't help myself, this is what I've always done. According to Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul builds the argument that those who have been truly born again, they have a complete new nature. And with that new nature in Christ, he changes your speech. So here's what it says, Colossians 3, 8, 16, and 17. Because of the Spirit's work, Put aside anger, wrath, malice. Now listen to all of these words dealing with the tongue. Slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Here here it is. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, here's how it starts. In word, starts in a speech. In word or deed. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. A transformed nature will produce a transformed behavior. And those who have been transformed by the Spirit of God will take on the nature of God. Now all of that leads into this first statement, and again, it takes five, seven minutes and we're close. Teachers of Scripture 
bear a greater responsibility and will receive a stricter judgment. We find this in verse number one. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Uh, James gives some of the most incredible and yet seemingly strange advice to the local church. Here's what he's saying. Limit the number of teachers in your midst. Let not many of you become teachers. Now, verse number one is not meant to discourage people from teaching Scripture. It's definitely not meant to discourage people who are genuinely called, genuinely gifted, and genuinely willing to teach the Word of God. That's not what this is about. It is intended to clearly state that everyone is not called to be a teacher, everyone is not gifted to be a teacher, and everyone is not qualified to be a teacher. And that is not bad, that is not derogatory, that is simply reality. God calls different people for different tasks. God gifts different people for different purposes. And even when the gifting and the calling are there, a person still might, might not be qualified at that moment to teach. Let me give you a couple of examples. Sin has disqualified many pastors and Bible teachers at least for a period of time, if not indefinitely. How long a person has been in the faith may disqualify them from teaching immediately. We find that over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Paul warned that an overseer, part of those responsibilities are to teach the word of God, should not be, quote, a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, somebody might be gifted, and they might have experienced a call of God on their life in the past, but if they become errant in their theology, they still shouldn't be teaching. What I mean by that is if they are not rightly handling the word of truth, if they are not preaching the word, if they are not preaching Christ in him crucified, if they are preaching another gospel, they do not need to be teaching anywhere at all period, exclamation points. In fact, Peter and Jude give some of the severest warnings against heretical teachers, 2 Peter chapter 2, as well as Jude verses 8, 10 and following. So I want you to go back to that statement for just a moment. Teachers of Scripture bear a greater responsibility. Why? Because they are teaching others the Word of God. They're saying this is what God says. And there is a deep responsibility that goes with that. Teaching the word of God should come with a deep understanding of the seriousness of that responsibility. That holds true for Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, small group leaders, counselors, or anyone who is called upon to teach the word of God. When you agree to teach scripture, there should be a holy reverence for that opportunity. There should be a humility in the heart of that person. There should be a desperate desire to be taught and led by the Holy Spirit. 
There should be a passion to rightly divide the word of truth. There should be a willingness to study and prepare so that when you stand before God's people with God's word, you can clearly and unapologetically say, thus saith the Lord. And when you do that, listen, you cannot back down. As a pastor, a Bible teacher, we do not have the right to try to apologize for what God has said. As a pastor, as a Bible teacher, we do not have the right to change what he says to fit our lives, to fit our experience, or to fit this culture. When we are teaching the word, it is his word. And the scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. 100%. There's a seriousness of teaching this. Now, I also want to make sure that we clearly understand there is not a double standard that's happening. It, it is not that, that a teacher is supposed to be more faithful in their walk with God. No. We are all called to be faithful in our walk with God. What this is bringing out is the fact that when someone is walking with God and teaching others the word, they have a greater opportunity to cause problems and dysfunction and hurt and pain by what they're saying. What they're saying needs to be able to be found right here. I, I don't have the right to get up here and to preach Paul Godhart's view of how to live this life. My job is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to say, this is God's word. This is what God says. This is God's best. This is how he changes you. This is what he says for your family. This is what he says about addiction. This is what he says about walking with him. This is what he says about answered prayer. This is how God says to operate in community. This is what he says about your spiritual gifts. This is what he talks about when it comes to coming together as a part of the body of Christ. This is what God says when it comes to walking faithfully with him. All my job is is to say, this is God's word right here. This is how you experience life. Somebody might say, Paul, how do you know whether or not it's a good Bible teacher or a bad Bible teacher? If what they say does not line up with what he said, run. Get out. Do not keep listening. Now, here's what we try to do. We try to say, oh, I know scripture enough that I can take out the good and the bad. And oftentimes what's happening is that person is pulling you down as opposed to you walking in truth. If it's not of the word, walk away from it. You're like, well, if I do that, I'm not going to understand what's happening in culture. Do you really think that God doesn't know what's happening in our culture? Our culture has been decrepit and sinful and depraved forever. And guess what? When it comes back to how do you change culture, you cannot change it yourself. Politics will not change it. You and I cannot muster the energy to change it. Here's how change happens. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms a person's life. It gets into their marriage. It gets into their family. It transfers over into the body of Christ. The body of Christ then begins to live as disciples in a lost world. And when that happens, here's what happens. Others around see something different and desirable in us. And they say, I want that too. Amen. It's been a month since I had a chance to preach and I'm excited about being here. We have an opportunity 
as a church. Oh, listen to this beautiful opportunity. This is a church who values the word of God. This is a church who speaker after speaker contacted me after being here, and everyone was saying the same thing. The Holy Spirit is alive and moving at Sherwood. We have an opportunity to say, God, let us be the church you've called us to be in this city. God, live it through us so that others would see the power of the gospel, that others would see the glory of God, and that others would be able to step into the life that he intends for them to live. But if we don't recognize the need with our tongue, we keep saying, I'll worry about that later. No, the tongue is telling the story of the heart. And when the heart's right, it's amazing how our behavior begins to change. I'm going to ask you if you would, just bow with me for a word of prayer. We are going to be in this book of James, in the section dealing with the tongue for at least another three or so weeks, at least. My prayer is that we don't deflect this and say that's somebody else's issue. I don't care who you are and how long you've been walking with Jesus. If you ask God to reveal any sins of your tongue, he will bring them to mind. As I've been preparing for this, God has brought to mind multiple areas in my life where my tongue is actively involved in sin. I cannot encourage you enough from the very beginning that we just simply say, God, would you reveal any area of sin in my life? And Lord, would you specifically bring to mind sin with my tongue. And when the Spirit of God leads, the only thing that a faithful disciple can do is submit, repent, and follow. I'm going to have a word of prayer. Our pastors and some of the pastors' wives will be down front. I'm going to have a word of prayer. We're going to sing a final song of invitation. But the service is, is not done This time is not done. It it needs to be that there's a response to what God is saying. And again, it is not a situation where there's like 10 people in this room who've got an issue with the tongue. If we're all going to be honest, our tongue has led to a lot of sin in everybody's life. But what would it look like if the church got serious about that part? So I'm going to have a word of prayer. The altar will be open. Some people might be wondering about a new walk with Christ, about what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Whatever it might be, we want to be able to minister to you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I'm asking that by your spirit, through your word, and for your glory, Lord, would you allow us to walk with deep integrity in our Christian life. Not saying one thing and living another, but Lord, walking with integrity.
God, would you do what only you can? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing, the altar is open.